that if the law, if the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution cannot be enforced in this social jungle called Dixie, it is time that Negroes must defend themselves even if it is necessary to resort to violence. That there is no law here and there is no need to, to take the white taxes to the courts because they will be free and that the federal government is not coming to the aid of people who are oppressed and it is time for Negro men to stand up and be men and that if it's necessary for us to die, we must be willing to die. If it's necessary for us to kill, we must be willing to kill. Welcome, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Act Protect Engage Academy podcast. I'm your host, Mr. Chase H. And it is time for one of my most anticipated, at least to me, podcast episodes for Black History Month so far. And that is the story of Mr. Robert F. Williams, arguably the originator of the Black Power movement in America. God bless you. I hope you enjoy this episode. Ape. All right, all right. Hello, once again, we are live. With another episode of the Act Protect and Engage Academy podcast. First things first, I want to do my housekeeping notes before we begin. You can do a few things for us that would help us tremendously. Okay, guys? First, if you could subscribe to the podcast. Okay, so we are on multiple podcast platforms. Let me name a few Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio. Google, Podbean, Podcast Addict, etc. Okay, so pretty much every major podcast platform you can find our podcast. Okay, so most of them you can hit a subscribe button. And if you do that, when you're watching the NBA on, on TNT and all of a sudden you hear a notification, a bing, or a vibration on your phone, and you look down, and you see a banner that says, a new episode of the Act Protect Engage, the Ape Academy podcast is streaming. You will know that we just put something out. You'll be able to be notified when we have new content. So that's really important and helps us out. Okay. Also, if you can follow us on social media. Okay. So we're on Instagram. Ape Academy podcast. I think it's underscore. Ape Academy podcast, something like that. You'll find it. <laughs> TikTok. I don't even know my own Ape, my own uh, podcast uh, at. Anyway, TikTok Ape Academy Pod. Also, we're on Twitter, Ape Academy Podcast. Okay, that really helps because on the Instagram account specifically, we put a lot of photos on there, 
um, a little bit of supplemental information for you that could kind of give you a different sense of um, the main characters of our podcast, you know, a little bit more information. Um, it also provides, we got tips about shooting. Remember, we are Second Amendment and a history podcast. We have tips about shooting, self-defense, history. It's a really cool kind of blend of information. It's kind of, if you want to know what the inside of my brain looks like, <laughs> look at our Instagram profile, okay, guys? You won't be disappointed. Lastly, last but not least, if you have a few extra seconds, if you could rate us three stars, hopefully it's more than that, four stars, five stars, I look at all the ratings, and if you have a few minutes, you can write a review, two sentences, two words, a freaking paragraph, it doesn't really matter, I look at all the reviews, and I really use that feedback to improve and provide the content that the people want to see, or want to listen to, I'm sorry, want to listen to, um, so... That's really important. It goes a long way. Don't think that your rating or your, your review won't matter and it won't be noticed. It definitely will. Okay, guys? Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. So, what are we talking about today? We're talking about the origins of the Black Power Movement. Okay? Now, we're not talking about the Black Panthers. Everyone knows the Black Panthers. Everyone knows the Nation of Islam. Not everyone, but most people know. Um, who are in the know, they know about Malcolm X and those type of um, more militant leaders. But the, the name Robert F. Williams doesn't come up a lot. And there are a few reasons for that. And we're going to talk about his story today, all right? So today's episode is called Militancy in Monroe, North Carolina. Shooting back at the Klan. This is one of the first instances where black folks promoted armed resistance armed resistance armed self-defense in defense of their communities in defense of their property in defense of their families in defense of their own lives all right we have a few sources today i always use um, books scholarly books right we're not going off of the internet everything i do is, is off of books peer-reviewed well-researched books by scholars and in this case a book written by Mr. Williams himself, okay? Two sources. Robert F. Williams' book entitled Negroes with Guns and Timothy, Timothy B. Tyson, Radio Free Dixie, Robert F. Williams and the Roots of Black Power, okay? So two really good sources. And we're going to start off by kind of um, describing Monroe, North Carolina, okay? Describing the uh, the environment that Mr. Williams came up in, setting the stage for the uh, bigger story, because I, you know, everyone knows that black folks really had a tough time, in the, especially Southerners, um, you know, living in the South after emancipation, after the slaves were freed. Um, black folks struggled in the South, really, really to to express their rights, their human rights, their human dignity. And I kind of want to just go back and talk about Monroe, North Carolina, and talk about a story that Mr. Williams told to many people, and he used it as a rallying cry to draw people in to his movement and to get them to join his chapter of the NAACP, which is widely considered as probably the most militant chapter nationwide of the NAACP at the time. Okay, which we're talking the uh, late 50s, early 
1960s. Okay? So, let's begin. When Robert F. Williams was only 11 years old, his mother sent him on an errand to the post office after one of their regular church prayer meetings, which were always hosted at their home. While walking down the main street, Mr. Williams witnessed a gigantic police officer described as a six-foot-tall, 200-plus-pound gorilla, Jesse Alexander Helms Sr., known locally as Big Jesse, whose son, so Big Jesse's son, was a U.S. senator. He watched this 200-pound police officer viciously assault an African-American woman. At 11 years old, Robert couldn't do much but watch in terror as Big Jesse knocked the woman to the ground with his sledgehammer-sized fists before he, quote, dragged her off to the nearby jailhouse, her dress up over her head, the same way that a caveman would club and drag his sexual prey, end quote. Mr. Williams recounted her desperate screams as the concrete tore the flesh from her body. The memory of this violent attack and the subsequent laughter of white onlookers haunted Williams for decades to come. But what really was seared into his young mind was the lack of action, the utter lack of action from the African-American men on the street who, quote, hung their heads in shame and hurried silently away from the cruelly bizarre sight. For the rest of his life, Robert Williams repeated this story to anyone who would listen. In the late 1950s, Williams used the story to recruit and inspire domestic workers and military veterans of Monroe, North Carolina to establish by far the most militant chapter of the NAACP. Williams used it while speaking to large crowds all over the world in Harlem at Malcolm X's Temple No. 7 all the way to Havana, Cuba. He retold the story hundreds, if not thousands of times. As his fame and notoriety grew, the hesitant leader of an emerging black power and black self-defense movement became a more central and really crucial leader for the civil rights movement at the time. Even after fleeing from North Carolina for his family's safety, a machine gun slung over one shoulder, in 1961, Williams retold the story from exile in Havana, Cuba, Cuba, on his popular Radio Free Dixie program from 1962 to 1965. The story was even retold from Hanoi in broadcasts directed to black soldiers in Vietnam. The childhood story is the first glimpse of life in Monroe, North Carolina in his autobiography, While God Lay Sleeping which Williams completed just before his death on October 15, 1996. So despite advocating for armed resistance and being a very strong man who was willing to use violence if necessary, he died peacefully in his bed as an old man, which was really, really nice to know. Robert F. Williams is one of the most influential, quote, radicals, and I put radicals in quotes because I don't think that self-defense-based ideology is actually radical. Yet, at the time, the idea of African Americans actually fighting back 
to defend their families, property, and even their lives was a concept foreign to white America. Author Timothy Tyson described Williams as, quote, a troubled intellectual, a fiery prophet, a courageous grassroots leader whose outbursts sometimes came back to haunt him. So the life and legacy of Robert Williams teaches us that the black freedom movement in America had deep roots. Its origin was based on long-standing traditions of armed resistance to white terror. Everyone, you know, is taught about the civil rights movement, the nonviolence, the peaceful protest. And even, our, you know, we learn about uh, Malcolm X by any means necessary. But what we don't know is that in the South, right, there actually was a tradition of armed resistance. And it really kind of began in the 1950s in North Carolina with Robert Williams. His story underlines the importance of the black soldiers' experience in World War II, and it exposes connections between the African-American civil rights movement and Cold War ideology that at times criticized and even repudiated American democracy. Williams' legendary fight also proves that the black power and civil rights movements began around the same time and that they were not incompatible with one another, that they, quote, emerged from the same soil, confronted the same predicaments, and reflected the same quest for African-American freedom. So let's talk a little bit more about Robert F. Williams. He was born on February 26, 1925, to John and Emma Williams, the fourth of five children, in a small, rural North Carolina town named Monroe. In this town, most black families toiled as sharecroppers or paid rent to white land landlords. But thanks to John Williams' position as a boiler washer with the Seaboard Airline, he and his wife were able to own their own home. That is like really rare in the South at this time. Most black folks were uh, tenants on the white landowners' farms or, you know, on, on their farms working their crops and they would give them a percentage of the crop as rent. And really they were just working just to survive. They were hovering below the poverty line, if not right at it, right? So we're talking most people were uh, poor to lower uh, middle class. Monroe, North Carolina is a small Southern County seat. In 1925, it was home to a mere 6,100 people of whom approximately one-third were black. White residents described the town as a place with, quote, no social problems, <laughs> ridiculous, right? No social problems that were of, of any significance and no bustle and hustle of the larger cities. As was the norm at the time, despite the charming comforts of small-town America, these seemingly wholesome qualities were not, they were not extended to the black community. So when people were talking about, oh, you know, it was a great town to grow up in. I have great memories. I don't remember any bad things happening. They're speaking from a different perspective than the black folks that lived there. The wholesome qualities were not extended to the black community. And in his book, Radio Free Dixie, Tyson explains that in 1930, 
Union County, North Carolina, which is where Monroe was located, had a population of 40,979 people. From this number, 10,048 inhabitants were descendants of 1,982 slaves and only 51 free blacks, reported in the 1950 census. Out of the whole county, right, 40,000 people, 10,000 were the descendants of slaves. So that kind of that kind of shows you that we're not that far removed from emancipation. Okay, so in 1930, there were 40,000 people who lived in the county. 10,000 of those were descendants of slaves. That means that the remaining 30,000, some of them owned their relatives or knew someone who owned their relatives. In order to really put Williams' heroic struggle into context, it is really important to understand the environment from which he attempted to establish a black resistance against overwhelming and violent white supremacy. And we're about to do that right now, okay? Militancy in Monroe. Now, what we're going to do, all right, so this is part one of the podcast. What I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm taking most of this information in this section from Mr. Williams' book, Negro with Guns. And, and, Viewer, you know, viewer, listener discretion advised because some of this stuff might be hard to listen to. I know it was hard for me to read. Um, and it, it, it really boils your blood when you hear what type of things African-Americans had to go through just to get basic respect. Right. There was no law and order. There were no po there was no police protection for African-Americans in this part of the South. Right. And this is North Carolina. I remember reading in Mr. Williams' book, he said that North Carolina was generally considered to be one of the more liberal southern states, right? One of the more um, moderate, in-the-middle type states. Not like Mississippi or Alabama, the deep, deep, dark red south. More like, you know, purple. You know, there was red, but it wasn't too bad. But we're talking about the major cities that weren't too bad. This is uh, a, a, a small town that's right near the border of South Carolina, and it's in a very small rural isolated county all right so listen to this this is from mr williams uh, prologue in his book negro with guns quote when an oppressed people show a willingness to defend themselves the enemy who is a moral weakling and coward is more willing to grant concessions and work for a respectable compromise psychologically moreover Races consider themselves superior beings, and they are not willing to exchange their lives for our inferior ones. They are most vicious and violent when they can practice violence with impunity. When they can practice violence with impunity. There were no cameras, and there were very few cameras and very few newspapermen in Monroe, North Carolina. One of the things that uh, Dr. King's movement really benefited from was the national news coverage, right? The press was all over it, right? The pictures of the marches were in the national newspapers. It was on the national news. Dr. King was a huge, popular, or, you know, in some section of the country, hated figure. But at least their message was getting out to the masses. In Monroe, North Carolina, a small little, little town, there weren't any cameras. So the black folks had to fend for themselves down there, okay? They had no support. 
1961, the NAACP chapter of Monroe, North Carolina, decided to picket the town swimming pool. The pool was built using public money, get this, but was off limits to African Americans, although they formed one third of the town's population. There's only one pool in Monroe and black folks could not swim in it. A few years earlier in 1957, local black leaders asked for the use of the pool for one day a week, right? Doesn't sound like that big of a concession. This of course was denied and for four years, city officials stalled and avoided the issue with vague suggestions that in the future, sometime in the near future, right? Ah, we're gonna get there, you know, just give us a little bit more time, right? Sometime in the future, another pool will be built. In the meanwhile, while black folks are, are advocating and, and, and trying to get this pool built, two African-American children drowned swimming in creeks. So enough was enough. In 1961, the NAACP decided to pick it, especially after they found, it was announced, they found out that the city had surplus funds, but there was no mention of a pool, no mention of even a consideration of building a pool. In response to this, the local NAACP decided to start a picket line, which did its job and closed the pool. When the pool was closed, the racists began to emerge from the shadows, right from the woodwork, and quote, decided to handle the matter in traditional Southern style. The growing crowd of bigots quickly turned to unlawful violence. After two days of picketing, the demonstrators began to take lunch breaks. So the, uh, the, the demonstrators, so the picketers, right, the, the uh, NAACP members began to take lunch breaks in a picnic area reserved for white people only. Across from the picnic area, on the other side of a shallow stream, a group of whites began to fire rifles at the trees above the heads of the picketers. Williams recalled that they could actually hear the bullets striking the trees as they were sitting there eating peacefully. Keep this in mind, they were not, you know, the, the, the demonstrators were not violent. They were not harassing anyone. They simply wanted basic human dignity basic respect. The chief of police was on duty at the pool and Williams appealed to him to stop the firing into the picnic area. The chief said, well, oh, I don't hear anything. I don't hear anything at all. The chief denied that he even heard the bullets. The next day, the same group firing rifles began to move closer to the picket line. Now they're firing pistols. The group of demonstrators continued to plead for police to stop them from shooting near them. Each time, the police would claim to not hear anything. The pool remained closed, and the NAACP continued the demonstration as crowds, now numbering in the hundreds, gathered to watch and shout insults at them. At this point, the threat of violence had escalated to the point where the NAACP decided to send a formal telegram to the U.S. Justice Department asking them to protect their picket line. The Justice Department punted it to the FBI. The FBI office in Charlotte, North Carolina, claimed the request was a local issue. And they, they say that they had consulted with that same chief of police. And that, chief, and that chief of police had assured them, right, gave them his word that there was adequate protection being provided to the picketers. This was the same chief of police 
who had stood by while racists fired rifles and pistols in the direction of peaceful protesters. In 1957, so a few years earlier, this same police chief had placed two marked, these weren't undercover cars, these were clearly marked police cars in a Ku Klux Klan motorcade that had raided the local black neighborhood. Fast forward. On Friday, June 23rd, 1961, so a few days later, after the picket starting, uh, the picketing started, a local car dealer that Williams recognized attempted to kill him. As Williams was driving on the outskirts of town, a sedan came up behind him and tried to force his smaller, lighter vehicle off an embankment and over a cliff with a 75-foot drop-off. Williams, a Marine Corps veteran, responded quickly and managed to outmaneuver the assailant by speeding up and getting in front of him. The attacker then rammed Williams' car from the rear, locking the bumper and began to race in a zigzag pattern across the highway in an attempt to flip Williams' car over. Williams described what happened next in his book, Negro with Guns. Quote, We had to pass right by a highway patrol station. The station was in a 35-mile-an-hour zone, and by the time we passed it, the other car was pushing me at 70 miles an hour. I started blowing my horn incessantly, hoping to attract the attention of the highway patrolmen. There were three patrolmen standing on the opposite side of the embankment in the yard of the police station. They looked at the man who was pushing and zigzagging me across the highway and then threw up their hands, laughed, and turned their backs to the highway. Dereliction of duty. That's what that was. They looked and they laughed. They thought it was funny. They thought that's pro they probably thought that's what Williams deserved. He deserved to die for standing up and defending his community. This life and death struggle continued for at least 25 minutes. So they were zigzagging. The guy was pushing him. He was trying to swerve out of the way and release himself from his bumper. This went on for 25 freaking minutes until they came to a highway intersection jammed with heavy traffic. The man hoped to run Williams' car into traffic. But about 75 feet, so right approaching this intersection, 75 feet from the highway, he was finally able to break free from the man's bumper and made a sharp turn into a ditch. Mr. Williams' car was severely damaged. After getting it out of the ditch, he took the car back to the swimming pool and showed it to the police chief. The chief stood up and looked at the car <laughs> and laughed. He said, man, quote, I don't see anything. I don't see anything at all. Williams responded, you were standing here when I left. The police chief responded, well, I still don't see anything. Williams demanded, he was enraged, he demanded that a warrant be issued for the man's arrest because he recognized the man from town. The assailant's name was Bynum Griffin, and he was the local Pontiac Chevrolet dealer, Pontiac Chevrolet dealer in Monroe. The chief denied the warrant, claiming he couldn't see anything that he had done wrong. Fortunately for Williams, a newspaper reporter had witnessed the entire exchange and only when this man, this white man, began to take interest in the issue did the chief offer to issue a warrant. Yet, when they arrived at the, police at the police station, the chief once again changed course, 
suggesting that Williams did not have sufficient evidence to charge the man with a crime. Apparently, a name, <laughs> a license plate, and a destroyed car <laughs> was not enough to issue a warrant. Quote, he said, wait a minute, and then made a phone call. The police chief came back and said, I called him and he didn't, he said he didn't do that. <laughs> really? You're going to take his word for it? Williams again repeated that he had seen the man with his own two eyes, looked him dead in the face as he was nearly killed. He even had the exact license plate number of the man's vehicle. Finally, the court solicitor said, quote, well, if you insist, I'll tell you what you, you can do. You can go to his house and take a look at him, and if you recognize him, you can bring him up here, and I'll make a warrant for him, end quote. Can you believe that? So he's begging the local law enforcement, the local city officials to help him. He had just been almost murdered by a man that he knew, that he sees around town. He goes to the police chief. He got, he, he's the eyewitness. He had one, another person in the car with him. He had two witnesses. He had a destroyed car. He had a license plate number and a description, and they still wouldn't issue the warrant. They wanted him to go there and take and bring the man in to them, so then they would issue the warrant. Williams retorted that he was not going to do such a thing, and that was what the police were paid to do, enforce the law and apprehend criminals. So guess what they did? They refused to issue a warrant for the man altogether. They said, you know what? If you don't want to go and do our job, then forget it. You might as well just drop it. I offer this example to show what law and order looked like in many small southern towns, cities, even big cities, and counties across the South at this time. There was no justice for African Americans, no recourse for, agree or for grievances or methods to right wrongs. This was the environment that birthed one of the most militant chapters of the NAACP and would nurture the early stages of the Black Power Movement. That is the end of part one. I just wanted to set the stage for you and kind of show you why Mr. Williams' philosophy emerged, really what kind of shaped it, right? The type of situation he's dealing with in Monroe, North Carolina. There is no protection for, for, for black folks. They have to protect themselves. And uh, Robert Williams was not against nonviolence. In fact, he preferred nonviolence. But when nonviolence wasn't working, when peaceful protesters are eating lunch quietly, not bothering anyone, and they're getting shot at, and the police are standing right there and doing nothing, something needs to change. Tune in for part two. It's going to be next week. I'm traveling to St. Louis. But I will be back with more. God bless you all. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, we got more great things coming out. Uh, Black History Month is American. Uh, Black History Month should not just be a month. Black history is American history. So just because Black History Month is over does not mean that I'm going to stop doing these podcasts. God bless you all. Stay safe. Remember, put God first, your family second, and your country third in that order. Stay safe, stay vigilant, get after it, and don't let anyone tell you you can't achieve your dreams. God bless y'all. Ape.
Part two is coming next week. We're going to talk about the shootouts with the clan. Ape out. <laughs>